Welcome to Engage Arizona. General Boykin credits U.S. leadership at the time of the 9-11 attacks for progress made and peace kept over 20 years. He blames the lack of leadership now for what he calls an embarrassing retreat that left America's enemies believing they beat America the country and they beat Christianity the religion. Boykin calls for America to be ready for more attacks and to avoid using the men and women in uniform as political pawns. Here now is Kathy Herod with General William G. Boykin. On the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the attacks on our homeland, we are privileged to have Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin as our guest. General Boykin served our country in the U.S. Army for 36 years, most significantly Christ as an ordained minister with a passion for sharing the gospel. For several years now, General Boykin has served as Family Research Council's Executive Vice President. Family Research Council is a trusted friend and ally of Center for Arizona Policy. FRC serves on the federal level in the same way CAP does at the state level. General Boykin's tours of duty included he is an original member of the U.S. Army's Delta Force. He commanded these warriors in combat operations. He commanded all the Army's Green Berets. He was served as a Deputy Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. He serves a duty of, with the CIA. And he has a special focus, though, in encouraging men to be the men that God has called them to be. I know him as a strong leader, as a kind man, and someone I greatly respect. So welcome, General Boykin, to Engage Arizona. Thank you very much, Kathy, and it is really good to be with you. Well, today, as we think about 9-11 and the attacks on our country, you know, I was a homeschool, uh, home, home, not homeschool, I was a homeroom mom for my daughter's class, and all the other moms were coming to my house that morning to plan for the school year. And, of course, then the TV was on. Where were you on 9-11 20 years ago? Yeah, I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I was there commanding uh, all the uh, Army's Green Berets, and uh, I uh, had actually just come back from uh, a tour of the Little Bighorn Battlefield. Uh, had gotten in very late at night or early in the morning, actually, and laid down to take a quick nap before I went to the office, and my wife woke me up and told me what was happening. Of course, I I got into the office in record time. I bet. Um, what was the just what was it like? I mean, here you're at Fort Bragg. What was it like that day, and and the response from the fellow servicemen um, at Fort Bragg that day? I think because we were special forces, I think that uh, we had been watching uh, this terror network grow. And I think we knew immediately what this was and, and had, uh, we were pretty sure we knew who it was. We knew that it was Al Qaeda. We knew it was Osama bin Laden. And, uh, and we knew we were going to war. So there was a, it was a time when everybody, I, I think, was, was uh, emotional because of the devastation that they had seen, but they were also angry and uh, and ready to to go and engage these people that had, had killed almost 3,000 Americans. Your thoughts on the American response overall, the leadership of President George W. Bush during that period of time? Yeah, I think that uh, he did exactly what he had to do. We, we could no longer let them get by without some kind of 
response. Uh, and, and remember, we'd had a number of terrorist incidents, like the bombing of the USS Cole, uh, and and we had not responded to them in any kind of significant way. And knowing that some bin Laden and the uh, Al Qaeda terror network were located in Afghanistan and were being harbored and sheltered there by the Taliban, uh, we had really no choice if we were going to try and put a stop to this. We had to go after Al Qaeda, the Taliban and Osama bin Laden. And I think that George Bush's leadership in this time was uh, was very, very good. Uh, and we went in there, and the truth of the matter is, uh, we went in in September, probably uh, around the, the third week of September, not long after the attack on the World Trade Center. We put boots on the ground in there. We linked up with the Northern Alliance, and we began to fight Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and we took back city after city. Uh, uh, and and by the first of the year, 2002, we really had control of the country. Uh, and and I think that that is a, uh, a tribute to the leadership of George Bush, but also to the readiness of our military at that time to be able to respond so quickly. With this support from uh, the CIA, which was very influential and very important. Uh, and now I think as I look at that, I, I hope that we're going to see our military stay ready and not be used as uh, political pawns in, in uh, what's going on in the country today. Well, and that's, I think I have kind of a combo question on, you know, what lessons did we learn from 9-11, but then when we see what's happened in Afghanistan over these last this last month especially, um, I mean, it's tragic what we've seen. I mean, people hanging from airplanes trying to get out of that country. Um, I mean, what, you know, with your experience and knowledge, how, what is going on? Did we not learn those lessons, or is it just our commander-in-chief is so weak and inept? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what it is. Uh, listen, somebody asked me on a program yesterday that I was doing, well, what were the three lessons that we learned from the 20 years that we were in Afghanistan? And I said, leadership, leadership, and leadership. The question that you asked earlier. And uh, right now, what we're seeing is a lack of leadership. Uh, we're seeing uh, a commander-in-chief that has not uh, provided sound um, direction and orders to our military, uh, nor to our, our government agencies like the CIA and the State Department. But he's also uh, seems to not be aware of, of, of exactly what's going on uh, in Afghanistan and in Quite frankly, it bothers me that I see on behalf of the team that he surrounded himself by, I see a team that has not shown a great deal of concern about the Americans that are on the ground in Afghanistan. So I am I'm very concerned about military operation in there, and and I don't care if if you want to say, well, the president made that decision. We have a secretary of defense and a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they're statutory mission is to uh, recommend uh, courses of action to provide 
uh, their best military judgment to the president of the United States. And I know that they could not, with the years of experience that they have, I know they could not have recommended giving up Bagram Air Force Base, getting the military out, and then trying to get the civilians out. I know they didn't recognize that. I mean, recommend that. But the problem is, if they didn't recommend it, and I don't think they did, they didn't have the influence with the president to be able to use a, a strategy and a course of action that would actually get those people out and provide them with the protection that they needed to be able to exit that country. If they have any more influence with the president than that, then you have to question whether they should be in those jobs. And my answer to that is no, they should not be in those jobs. If they can't influence the president on a life and death situation, of thousands of Americans. Do you have a, any knowledge or sense of how many Americans still are in Afghanistan or how many American allies that we, we should still be trying to get out? Or, I mean, you hear different estimates, and, and where does the truth lie? Yeah, nobody knows for sure, but I can tell you it's a lot more than the, than the 100 Americans that the administration has uh, acknowledged. I, th I think you have more like a, a, a thousand or more Americans. Americans, now keep this in mind, these are people with American passports. Some of them were born in, in Afghanistan, but they have gone through the process to become American citizens. And then I think that those that we call the SIVs, uh, the special invitation visas or people who worked with the U.S. military in one capacity or another. I think there are thousands of those that are still left in there. And I was just talking to somebody uh, a couple of days ago about this, and, and, and he acknowledged, yeah, there are thousands of those SIVs that uh, want to come out, and, uh, and right now they're being hunted down. And uh, if, you, if you see... Uh, videos that you could never show it to the public. But uh, if you see some of the videos that are coming from credible sources, you'll see that uh, these people are being killed in some very brutal ways uh, because they work for the Americans. And, and, this, and, and keep in mind that we are relying on the Taliban. We, are, we had to ask the Taliban to give us permission to get our people out and to let them through the checkpoints and, and, to fly their airspace. I mean, this is beyond uh, anything that I could have ever imagined. Um, these are the people we for 20 years, and now we are people out. Kathy, that is something that makes me as an American totally humiliated and embarrassed, but also sad for the state that our government is in. Well, in general, that's, that's one reason why when our in Arizona, when our governor and speaker of the house welcomed the Afghan refugees into our state, and that we would help to take care of these people, that's why I thank them for being willing to do that. I've been asked, "Well, are you concerned about terrorists that are slipping through by all the people that have left Afghanistan?" And you know, we've kind of said, "Well, that may be worth the risk." I mean, that's kind of that's a different way to put it, but we still have an obligation to take care of these people that were our allies and who befriended, and then now we. Have Abandon them, but how do you answer that question? On are we concerned about the Afghani's that now are in our country? Yes, I, I think it's we have to acknowledge that in this mass of people that we will be bringing in, that our vetting is not going to be a hundred percent, and there may be terrorists associated with this. But look, 
at the same time, if they are legitimately people who worked with us and we made a promise to them, we have to bring them back. Now, we've got a vetting process, and we've already found about 100 that are questionable. So the vetting process, once you get them into one of these military bases there where you have more time and you have more resources to be able to really go through a proper vetting process, I think that that reduces the risk, but I think we just have to accept it. Somebody may slip through the crack, but look, it's the price that we're paying right now for 20 years uh, in Afghanistan. You know, I think sometimes we we don't emphasize enough that we've not had another attack on our country in 20 years. Uh, what do you attribute to our our country staying safe safe from another terrorist attack? Well, I think when we put when we went in and put boots on the ground in Afghanistan uh, and, and then started fighting Al Qaeda, they ultimately basically left Afghanistan and they went into places like North Africa and and, uh, and and other parts of the Middle East because they could no longer operate from uh, Afghanistan. And w- as long as we had boots on the ground in there and had a counter-terrorist capability, we were searching them out. We were going after them almost every day. We were running some kind of operation to go after a terrorist. It may have been a drone strike or it may have been uh, our Green Berets or Delta Force or SEALs going in on targets and, and, and taking these people out or arresting them. And, and uh, most of the time it was uh, taking them out. It was killing them uh, because they, you know, they were not willing to go without a uh, fight. That said, um, I think that we can attribute uh, the lack of attacks on America to our presence in Afghanistan once we got them scattered. The problem is now they're coming back. They never completely left, but they went underground. What was left in Afghanistan went underground. They were not a problem, immediately at least. And now you're going to see them coming back in there. And they're coming back so they can shake their fist in our face. Not that they necessarily need Afghanistan, but it's uh, for them, it's a victory. And Kathy, let me just say this. One of the big problems with, with what we did in this, uh, the, the way we left Afghanistan, one of the big problems is that the messaging that is going through the jihadist network, through the Islamic world, is that uh, Islam prevailed, Islam won. Islam defeated Christianity. They defeated the great Satan. And that if you'll just be persistent, you can bring America down, you can defeat America. And I think that's going to fuel more terrorist attacks on this country. Certainly a matter of deep prayer and for people to understand what's going on. I think of the the people that we heard who joined up in the Army or the Air Force after 9-11 because they wanted to fight the, the, the sense of patriotic duty. And you, 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 a lot of days now you wonder, do we still even have that sense of patriotic duty? And what is all this doing now to, to the lack of patriotism? I mean, we can look all around us. But let's shift a little bit to your work at Family Research Council. And um, you, you, you've had an exemplary career, you know, served our nation so honorably. And then now you're at Family Research Council. What a, a significant career shift. Um, why at FRC? What's your passion for doing what you do at Family Research Council? 
Well, I'll tell you, Kathy, I have uh, six grandchildren. And uh, my wife and I, uh, back in 2011, um, after our children and grandchildren left our home after Christmas, uh, we just, uh, we, we stood in the kitchen. And my wife said to me, what kind of country are we going to leave those six grandchildren? And it was at that point that uh, we made a pledge to God and to each other that we would spend the rest of our, our time uh, trying to provide for their future in terms of fighting the evil that is in America, fighting the evil that's in our society, and helping to restore the the values that our founding fathers gave us. And that is what motivates both of us is those six grandchildren. And I don't know how much we can do, but we will do all we can. That's why an organization like yours is so important is because you are working to secure my grandchildren's future, whether you know them or not. Amen. Well, I sure have nothing to add to that. And I think that's the motivation that many of us in this cause, to put it that way, we feel that call of God. We're concerned about future generations. And we want to be able to stand before a holy God someday and say, we did everything we could to leave behind a world that honors Christ, that honors God, and that our, our children and grandchildren have opportunities better than what we have had and that they have and most of all that freedom is secured without a doubt so general boykin has been my guest today thank you so much general um what a delight to spend this time with you um appreciate your wisdom and insight into what's going on and we will keep you and, and your work in our prayers and so god bless you thank you very much kathy and for, thanks for what you're doing your organization you are at the you're at the top of the stack as in, in terms of uh, the kind of people that we really like to work with. So God bless you, and uh, and I hope to. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona Public Policy for Daily Life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.